pretty sobering, isn't it? I want to take just a moment to uh, express gratitude to Lester's mom and stepfather for ministering with us and helping us this morning in our time of worship. We love you guys and happy to have you with us. I'm going to read something very brief from World Magazine about a dear Christian couple that you will someday meet. Our brother and sister Dave and Donna Reed have met this couple, been in their home, and seen the rooms, the bedrooms, where their children used to live and sleep. Scott and Janet Willis lost six children in a single day. When a piece of metal fell off of a truck and punctured the gas tank of their minivan. That's the part of the story that is public, so I'm not telling tales out of school. The accident unraveled a corruption scandal of bribes for driver's licenses funneled into campaign chests and ultimately sent a governor of Illinois to prison. But this is an essay about meeting the Willises 17 years later at a Christian conference and about Psalm 34 and the triumph of Christendom by that simplest and most elusive of acts, believing God. And it is about the responsibility placed on me by knowing this now and on you too if you continue to read. By the ball of fire that consumed their minivan on Interstate 94, Scott, his face badly burned, said to his wife, her hands badly burned, what she told me are the best words he could have said. Quote, it was very quick, and they're with the Lord now. Then, as he was helped to one ambulance and she to another, he called back to her, Psalm 34, surrounded by emergency responders, Janet kept praying out, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, with the accent on will. I believe it is the same way with Jesus when he cried out to his Father, I will put my trust in him. Hebrews 2.13 And then at the end of the little essay, the writer, a woman, a sister, quotes this scripture, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Isaiah 54.1 a command to sing at such a time would be cruel counsel if it were not true that in worship we find deliverance. In worship we find deliverance. 
Praise meets trauma where nothing else can reach. Praise in the face of devastation releases blessings unobtainable in no other way. The presence of God is directly related to worship. Well, as I said, someday maybe we'll have the privilege. Well, we will surely in eternity to meet Scott and Janet Willis. Godly people. But you know what I want to say to you? Don't tell me that there's no Havel for Christians. Some of you are saying, Havel? What's that? That's the Hebrew word translated in our passage this morning, vanity. And it's a rich word. It carries many connotations. It means empty, literally vapor, but it implies empty, fleeting, temporary, passing, unsubstantial, unsatisfying, frustrating, pointless, meaninglessness, absurd, futile, puzzling, mysterious, enigmatic, disappointing, boring, monotonous, and on I could go. In fact, the word vanity just doesn't capture all of the nuances of this Hebrew word havel. And in each particular usage of the word vanity, we need to see if we can appreciate the thrust of Solomon's thought at those points. Well, last Lord's Day, I launched our series entitled Coming Up Empty and pointed out that the title of this book is Ecclesiastes, which again is somewhat meaningless unless you can appreciate the significance of the Hebrew word Kohelet. That's actually what the title of this book is, Kohelet. And Kohelet is actually a person. It is a person who calls together an assembly of people for the purpose of instructing them. And so our translation refers to him as the preacher. And that's okay. It may be better to think of him as the teacher or even as the philosopher. This is a unique book in the company of wisdom literature. I mentioned last week there's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. But this one is a unique wisdom book because it's quite different. It seems negative. It seems somber. It seems discouraging. It seems depressing. And it is until we get to the point. And last Sunday morning, I made the point that I want to make again this morning. And I've already made it. Listen to me. We are all under Havel. We are all subject to vanity. Vanity is not just something that the non-Christian has to deal with in this world. Vanity is something that we all have to deal with in this world. We're all under the curse. We all live in a fallen world where pieces of metal fall off of trucks and cause gasoline tanks to explode and burn up children from a godly home. We are all 
fallen ourselves. And we live in a fallen world. And we live on an earth that is under the present curse and judgment of God. We are all under the sun. And under the sun, as I said last Lord's Day morning, does not refer to a worldview. That's not the best understanding of that expression. There are some who say that. Say, well, you see what he's doing is he's looking at life from the perspective of under the sun. Well, it's true that all who live under the sun and aren't converted look at life in a wrong way and have a worldview that differs from the Christian worldview. But the expression under the sun refers to a sphere. It's where we live on this earth. It's life on this earth. And because of the fall, we no longer live where we would like to think we live. We would like to think that we live on the second floor of a third-story cosmic condo. But reality is, we live in a prison cell on death row. And that's what explains such things as natural disasters and disease and death and tragedy and malfunctions and deterioration and social evil. That's what explains the natural disasters of lightning strikes and forest fires and floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and volcanoes and earthquakes and droughts and famines and weeds and thistles and thorns and poison ivy and poisonous mushrooms, and poisonous snakes, and stinging bees, and mosquitoes, and violent and dangerous man-killing animals. This is what explains appendicitis. Christians have their appendix taken out. And heart attacks, and muscular dystrophy, and multiple sclerosis, and paralysis, and brain tumors, and pneumonia, and cystic fibrosis, and cancer, and a thousand other diseases. This is what explains malfunctions and metal fatigue in planes that crash and in automobiles that veer off the road. This is what explains the stubbing of our toes. And this is what explains the social evils of our world. Wars, bigotry, racial prejudice, hatred, sex perversion, child abuse, addictions, overcrowded prisons, political corruption, Social injustice in the list goes on and on and on. Do you not live in that world? Are you never subject to the havel of these things because you're a Christian? Then you're living in a dream world. And we must appreciate the fact that because God is sovereign, we too live under the curse, though we have been redeemed if we're true believers, from the ultimate curse. And so, that's all I want to say by way of reiteration from what we considered together last week. This is the stuff that the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans 8 when he said, creation is subject to bondage, not willingly. Creation is subject to bondage. He goes on in Romans 8 to say that it's in the bondage of decay. And it's groaning. And he even says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit also groan. So dear brothers and sisters, and those of you who are not our brothers and sisters, listen to me. So long as you live under the sun, 
you are continually subject to Havel. Now this morning we're going to see where Solomon starts to prosecute his argument. Jason has read it for us. And if you'll notice again, in verse 2, he establishes his theme. He makes a broad, sweeping assertion. He says, vanity of vanities. I want you to notice that, of. Some of the translations don't do that. Because what the writer is actually doing is he's giving us what grammarians would call a superlative. It's kind of like when we say, he is the king of kings. He's not just a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. This is the vanity of vanities. And after laying out that sweeping assertion that all is vanity, he says vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, as if that weren't enough, and then he stops and says one more thing, all is vanity, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, says one of the translations. And after establishing that theme, he begins immediately to illustrate it in verse 3. So, would you notice that? It's a question. And by the way, there are 32 questions in the book of Ecclesiastes. 32. And they're probing questions. They're disturbing questions. They're troublesome. They're not easily answered. In fact, Solomon himself is in no hurry to answer. And I do believe that Solomon wrote this. That's very debatable, even among conservative scholars. Just because he was the son of a David doesn't mean he was Solomon. Jesus was also the son of David. Uh, grandchildren were called the son of David. And just because he was king in Jerusalem doesn't necessarily make him Solomon. But I think as we go on and we see the kind of wisdom this man had and the kind of wealth he had, and when he confesses that no one before him had that kind, it's hard for us to read our Old Testament histories and see if we can find somebody who even came close to having the wisdom and the riches and the power and the influence and the experience of Solomon. So I believe it was Solomon who said this, but now he's going to begin to illustrate the vanity, the havel that we all have to cope with. And he illustrates it by asking a question which begs an answer and which he himself answers in a very, very blunt, discouraging kind of way. What is the question? Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil or labor or effort or work at which he toils under the sun. What's the gain? It's, the word there means profit. It literally means what's left over. You know, we go into a business endeavor, we have to invest money, we have to purchase materials, and we hope at the end of the process, we look and we say, now what, what's left over? What did we gain? That's his question. What does man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun. And in essence, 
dear brothers and sisters, the answer is going to be simply this. Nothing. 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 Not really. Not truly. Not in the deepest, most ultimate sense of the term. Now, later we're going to get some encouragement and we're going to see that we can labor and we can work for the glory of God and we can obtain some pleasure out of it if we're realistic and if we do it for the glory of God, etc., etc., etc. But he's not talking about that yet. He's wanting to make us face reality and he's saying, in the ultimate scheme of things, man or mankind really doesn't make any difference or any change or have any real success in all of his labors. Notice chapter 2 and verse 22. It's the same question. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. And then just chapter 3 and verse 9. What gain, there's our word, what profit has the worker from his toil? And he's going to keep saying nothing. Nothing. Not really. So this is kind of a general question that the outset of his overall argument. Now, he's going to look at other things. You know that. You've read the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope you took my, uh, my suggestion that you read two chapters every day. I did it myself this week. It was a blessing. And, but be careful. It's going to take a lot of time, about five minutes. Two chapters a day, every week, until we're done with this series. Get familiar with this book. And you're going to find out that Solomon went on some quests. He didn't just ask questions. He endeavored to discover things, and he wanted to find out if there was meaning in these things. And you know what some of them were and are. The, the quest for wisdom, the quest for knowledge, the quest for pleasure, the quest for wealth, etc., etc. He wants to speak from experience. And many people believe that this, in a sense, is the evidence of his later life repentance, because he did veer off, didn't he? And now he gives to the church for all ages the wisdom of his experience. And he says, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Don't chase after the wind. It's futile. It's vain. It's meaninglessness. It's absurd. It's unrewarding. In fact, it's frustrating. That's what he's going to tell us. So the question is sort of a general question. And he's going to answer it for us. And he's going to say, as I've already hinted, that there's no lasting profit from this endeavor. There's nothing really left over of any significance. In fact, not just for you personally, but for a whole generation. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. That's kind of an interesting order, isn't it? How would you have put that? I would have put a, a generation comes and a generation goes. That's the way we normally do it. He says, no, a generation goes 
And what I want you to think about is that it's going to be followed by another generation. It's going to be repeated. There'll be another generation, and then it'll go, and then another generation will come, and another generation. And this futility is not just for individuals. It's for whole generations. They come and they go. And he chooses for us some illustrations. And really, what he's going to show us in these verses, especially verses 5 through 11, is how mundane and how boring and how repetitious life is. And that's why I think I entitled this uh, The Vanity of Monotony. Do you ever say, this is really monotonous? This is really, I'm really tired of this? I mean, come on, it's the same thing. Day after day, I get up in the morning, I have a quick breakfast, maybe drink a cup of coffee, go off to work, do my thing at work, have a brief break, put up with all the kind of craziness that goes at work, have lunch, have another break in the afternoon, come home, tired, have to do the things I need to do, all the while the wife is doing the things she has to do, whether in or out of the home, but for a moment as she's in the home, she has to wash the same clothes that she's washed hundreds of times until they've worn out and they have to be replaced, and that's mundane too. And she folds, dries them, and she folds them, and she puts them away, and she hangs them up, and she prepares another meal and washes the dishes, and we do the same thing day after day after day after day, the same old, the same old. And Solomon says, that's part of the reason that life is Havel, because it's monotonous. It isn't always going to be monotonous. Oh, I wish I could just take off for a moment and lead us through holy imagination to what life will be like on the renewed earth when there is no more sin, when there's no more Havel, when there's no more broken relationships, when there's no more pain, sorrow, disappointment, and frustration. It's unbelievably glorious to even contemplate. But for now, what is it? It's monotonous. And he says, let me just give you some illustrations. Generations go and generations come, but the earth remains forever. It just stays. Nothing really changes. Let me choose three things, says Solomon, to show you how repetitious life is even on the earth. And it's emblematic of what life is for you. He says, let's think about the sun for a minute. What does it do? It rises in the morning and it sets at night. And then while we're sleeping, if we can just think sort of poetically and, and figuratively in terms of wisdom literature, it runs around the other side of the earth real quickly for us so that it can rise in the morning and go down at nighttime and runs around and rises in the morning and goes down at nighttime. The sun rises, then the sun sets, and songs have been written about that. And it just does the same thing. And where does it get? Where does it go? It doesn't get anywhere. It just does the same thing. No, if you want to look at it from a Christian perspective, when we should at times. It's wonderful, isn't it? It shows the stability of nature. It's a great dilemma to the evolutionist that God has created a world where there is normalcy, where there's uniformity. I understand that, but right now Solomon's making a different point. There's all this activity, but there's no real change. And he says, if you like, think about the wind. In verse 5, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. Watch the weather channel. 
I know this is not talking about the jet streams because they didn't know about the jet streams. Even Solomon didn't know that. But it's the same thing. You see the jet stream and we experience the wind. And sometimes the wind, well, it generally comes from the west, but in its westerly movement, it goes up to the north and picks up some coolness and it comes down to the south and brings it. And when these winds and these various pressures meet together, it causes storms. Basically, that's what the wind does. It just does the same thing over and over and over and over, not merely for weeks and months and years and centuries, but for millennia. And where does it go? And what really changes Nothing. How'd you like to be the wind? Pretty mundane. Pretty humdrum. Psalm says, let me give you another illustration of all this activity, all of this hubbub, all of this movement, all of this motion that goes nowhere. Goes nowhere. Just like people. Doing, 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 running, hurrying, thinking, planning, scheming, buying, doing stuff all the time, all the time, all the time. And nothing, nothing really changes. And we're so desperate that we just keep doing it, hoping that maybe something really significant will change. And Psalm says, nothing really significant is going to change. Not really significant. And so he says, let's think of the water for a minute. The streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. You ever thought about that? Why doesn't the ocean get overflow? Well, we know that the waters evaporate. And they go up into the skies, and God causes the water to come back down in the form of rain. And there is this endless cycle. He doesn't perhaps understand that cycle, but we know the cycle. But he can at least acknowledge, isn't it interesting, that the water flows into the sea, but the sea is never full. And yet the rivers and the streams continue to flow. Monotony, monotony. Endless repetition, constant motion and action, but no real change. And Psalm says, that's the Havel in which you live. And your life and my life, he says to us, it's just like the sun, it's just like the wind, it's just like the water. We don't really ever get anywhere unless we know God. Just putting that in there. Solomon hasn't put it in there yet, has he? Why? Because he wants us to face reality. He wants us to feel this. He wants to drive us to God. But we have to be patient with Solomon. So, there's really no lasting profit. There's nothing left over. There's no benefit Nothing really accomplished, nothing really changed, nothing really new, no one really remembered. But I haven't shown you that, have I? So let's just notice very quickly, uh, verse 10, excuse me, verse 9. Well, I keep going back, I'm sorry, verse 8. All things are full of weariness. Even for the Christian, but just not in the same way. A man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That's that insatiable desire for new and change and meaning and significance. If I could just see more, that would really satisfy me. And I want to say to you, and Solomon wants to say to you, really? Really? You really still believe that? You honestly believe that if you could just see more, you would really be happy? No, you don't believe that. You can't believe that. If you could just hear more, you would really be fulfilled? You can't believe that. If you do, you're a fool. How long do we have to live to know that seeing and hearing do not satisfy the deepest recesses of the soul? And then he says in verse 9, what has been, is that what will be? You want to know what the future is going to be like? It's going to be like the past. Well, there'll be minor changes and alterations and the scenery changes. Certain people come and go and generate, but it's going to be the same. And he goes on and says, and what has been done is what will be done. Just two ways of saying the same thing. And there's nothing new under the sun. Now, we get tripped up with that word new because we try to pack into it some meaning that Solomon doesn't have in mind. What do you mean there's nothing new? I got an iPhone. Did you have one of those 20 years ago? Have you seen what's going on with computers and technology? Some of us remember when there wasn't such a thing as an air conditioner. I'm in that category. Not embarrassed to say I'm in that category. I'm, you know something? I'm just going to confess this by the grace of God. I'm really, I'm really content with being 67. It's sobering, but I'm very content with it. I don't mind getting old. I'm sobered by how little time I have yet to serve the Lord. But some of us remember going to bed as little kids in hot bedrooms, in upstairs bedrooms, and sweat. We didn't even have fans sometimes. You open a window and it feels like it made it hotter. So fans are new, Solomon. Air conditioners are new. You don't know what you're talking about. He's saying, I'm talking about the effort to make life more pleasurable and less burdensome, actually ultimately giving meaning and happiness to life. Is there anything new that has really touched the deepest recesses of the soul? Of course there are new inventions. But in a sense, it's just a new version of the same old thing. Nicer, newer, but then pretty soon that will change too. But they're categorically, fundamentally, principally the same things. In the deepest sense of the meaning of new. Nothing new under the sun. And again, if you've lived long enough, you know that that's true. And so in verse 10 it says, it has been already in the ages before. And then to add insult to injury, this one's really <laughs> discouraging too. And by the way, he says just one more thing. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. And again, he's not absolutizing. He's making a, a point. He's establishing a principle if you live to be remembered, you're wasting your time. Do you know how many people make it into the history books? 
And what happens is the history books, you know, get bigger and bigger, but in order to keep them from getting too big, the people that were just sort of medium weights fall down to lightweights, and the lightweights fall out of the picture altogether, and there's just a few people in the long history of man that are ever actually remembered. But the millions and the billions of people are not remembered, and we won't be remembered. Someday, I'm going to be a great-grandfather if the Lord preserves my life. It may not happen for me because we started too young, too old. But let's just pretend that Diane and I got married young and started having a family young. I would become a great-grandfather. And some people make it to great-great. How many of you really know who your great-great-grandfather was, your great-grandmother? Some of you do. How many of you know who your great-great-grandfather was and your great-great-grandmother? That's four generations away. You've already forgotten. Your own family. We want to leave a lasting impression and we want people to remember us. And it's a vain Vain pursuit. Dever in his overall sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes says, regardless of the wealth, splendor, or accomplishment of a man, he will be forgotten. Take the great Egyptian king Ramesses, Ramses II, for instance, and consider how memorable his greatness was as captured by Shelley's poem, Ozymandias. Some of you have heard of that. This is what Shelley says about Ramses II. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, A shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well these passions read which yet strive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. End quote. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ramses II has been forgotten. And so will we. So what's the point? The point is, dear brothers and sisters, and you, my unbelieving friends, we must quit looking for ultimate meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and pleasure in this fallen world. Okay? That's the point. May I say it again? What's the point? The point is we must quit looking for ultimate meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and pleasure in this fallen world. The key word is ultimate. Because we're going to see that God has 
made it legitimate for us to seek some level of meaning and purpose and satisfaction and pleasure in this fallen world. It isn't all dismal. We're just not there yet. We're in chapter 1. He doesn't want us there yet. But I want us to know about that, and, and so I have to use the word ultimate. That's the point. There's no ultimate meaning or purpose or satisfaction or pleasure in a fallen world. Solomon, as I said before, is in no hurry to resolve the dilemma or the tension. He wants us to become desperate. He will eventually offer an alternative. But we who preach through this series, my fellow pastors and I, want to offer it in every sermon. Life for us who trust in Christ does not have to be meaningless. If we know and love Him who is above the Son, I'm not talking about worldviews now. I'm talking about spheres. Now, He's here too because He's omnipresent. It's, all that exists is in God. If you can imagine, God is so large and so infinitely omnipresent, that everything is in Him. But right now we're thinking in terms of above and below, because that's the analogy Solomon is giving us. He says, you all live below the sun, on the earth that has been cursed and is under judgment, and you have to deal with Havel. But there is relative meaning and significance and joy and pleasure and purpose for those who know Him and love Him who is above the sun. There is significance for those of us who love the one who sent Havel. Don't forget that. Havel isn't something that's out of God's control. God sent the Havel. God sent the Havel. When Adam and Eve died, they eventually did die. Don't blame that on the devil. They are personally accountable for their own sins. But God is the one who said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. I'm going to see to that. And he cursed the world. He cursed the ground. He told Adam, I've cursed it. God is sovereign over the Havel. But if we know and love him, then we can deal with the Havel. And we can find meaning and purpose. This is partly what Jesus meant when he said, I have come to give people life and to give them life to the fullest. So there's the hope, isn't there? So what are you saying, PT? I'm saying you can have pleasure and life and meaning and significance in this cursed world which is under the sun. Now, is it going to be like it's going to be? No. But it's going to be real. And it is real. And that's the testimony of those of us who are Christians. Next week, we're going to hear one of those testimonies. We're going to watch a brother be baptized. And, and we're going to learn how he was in terrible bondage to alcohol and terrible bondage to pornography and terrible bondage to relational problems and, and his whole life was all messed up because he was trying to find meaning apart from the one who is above the sun. 
And Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. And it's the same Jesus who said, and who posed a different question, didn't he? Maybe some of you have thought of this. You remember the question that goes like this? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Pretty close, isn't it, to the question that Solomon's posing. Is there any real benefit and gain for man who gives his whole life to the pursuit of pleasure and progress? No. But there is for those of us who find the Lord Jesus. So, what are my concluding applications? They're simply these. I said in an advertisement for this series of sermons that the purpose of Ecclesiastes is at least twofold. It's to drive the lost to Christ and to wean the believer from the world. I hope you'll remember that. I think that's a significant and safe thing for me to say. If somebody asks you, so what's the book of Ecclesiastes for? I'm understanding what it's about. What's it for? It's to drive the unbeliever to God and especially to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel. And it's to wean the Christian from this world. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we need to be weaned from this world. Because you know what? A lot of us are still trying too hard to find deep and ultimate satisfaction from this world. This is because of remaining sin. So I want to ask you as I conclude, what makes you happy? What makes you happy? Is it pleasure and success and wealth and worldly accomplishments? Is it sex? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? Is it athletic prowess? Is it popularity? Is it bigger houses? Nicer cars? What is it? Let me put the question this way. What is your most frustrating pursuit in life? That will be a revealing. The answer to that will be revealing. What frustrates you the most about life? Can you look at life and see how the boring and mundane and monotonous nature of it fits into the big plan of God? Are you real? Have you gotten real yet by the grace of God? If you haven't, then you're going to just live in constant frustration. And frankly, some of us look like we live in constant frustration. You know, you, just, you need to see yourself in the mirror. You need to see the look on your face. You're disgruntled. Oh, you're disgruntled. You've got several things that are just working you over big time. Well, you better go see the Willises in Chicago who lost six of their children in one moment and praised and worshipped God. And then think about what it is that's troubling you so much. Because things aren't working out quite the way you hoped they would work out. This really irritates me. This really irritates me. Really? Welcome to Havel. Why don't you go to God and say, God, you've taken care of the biggest thing that could ever be imagined. My guilt, my sins, my justification, my eternal state. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. Heaven is my home. I'm going to persevere. Nothing, nothing is worth disturbing me so much that I've got to go around looking like a grumpy Christian. Do you think your countenance is winsome to the lost? Man, I, would, I want to be just like that woman. You can tell she really enjoys her Christian life. I want to be just like that guy. He really enjoys it. Look at his snarling 
countenance. Dear people, we need to be realistic about the world in which we live. And yes, Heritage Baptist Church and its weaknesses and failures, okay? We're not the perfect church. We're never going to be the perfect church. Guess what? It doesn't exist on the face of the earth. So let's get our cranked minds and hearts out of the gut gutter and let's come back to the reality that God is for us. We can be happy Christians. We can be joyous. We can be winsome. We can be focused on mission. And we can deal with Havel. Yes, Havel in the life of a church. Because guess what? At the end of the day, we're all sinners. I said we're all sinners. But we've got a great Savior. So, what does it take to make you happy? There is one thing that's new, and with this I conclude. I'll tell you what's new is that life under the sun has been invaded. There is a person belonging to the Trinity who took upon himself frail human flesh and gave up the glories of heaven and the worship of the myriads of angels and came down here to live and to die in our place and to redeem us and to pay for our sins. And on the basis of that, we can experience a new birth. A new birth. And enter into the blessings of a new covenant. And wait for a Savior who is going to come and make a renewed earth. And if we do that, and we put our trust entirely in Him, we can make it through this world under the sun and under the curse of Havel. May the Lord help each of us to trust Jesus alone. Heavenly Father, thank You for this sobering, frustrating, discouraging, depressing portion of Scripture. We admit to you that we don't like the conclusions that Solomon is drawing for us because there's still too much of a desire in our hearts to find meaning from this world. Forgive us for that. O oh Lord, be gracious to the young and to the older folk who have never come to Christ and who are just trying so hard to find meaning in life in all the wrong places. Be gracious to them, and may they find it in you. And Lord, may we who have found it quit trying to find more of it from this world. Lord, help us to realize not only why we've been created, but why we've been redeemed, and help us to see that the greatest of all causes is the advancement of your kingdom, and we're worried about stuff. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that our ultimate pleasure awaits us upon your return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing.